This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Our sermon text this morning comes from John 15, the first 11 verses. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. You know, metaphors matter in different areas of life, and metaphors don't simply serve to illustrate something, but to open up and close down uh, areas of thought and of questioning. So we're in an election year, and economics is often being discussed, and different metaphors allow for different conversations. You'll notice some people think that the economy is like a pie. It's something that exists and is bounded, and the only question is how it's divvied up, how it's sorted out, how it's given a bit to this person here or taken away and given to someone there. Others suggest, on the other hand, the economy is like a garden. It's not bounded necessarily. It's not uh, predetermined in size or scope, but it's something where different uh, businesses or elements are allowed to grow and flourish or wither and die. And the question is one of providing space for people to grow and flourish and invest and harvest. Two very different approaches to thinking about money and markets. And it's not just things out there where metaphors matter, but religion, life with God. You'll probably be familiar that there are some out there who suggest that the gospel involves the word and the promise that we're in the promised land, that this life is one where you can name and claim your blessing, where you can expect a life of unhindered and overwhelming abundance and prosperity, healing and riches and wealth and success mark the life of God's children in the here and now. And of course through the centuries have described the Christian life and journey as a pilgrimage, not with the picture of the promised land, but rather the journey, right? The sojourn, uh, the, the wanderings of a migrant people who are no longer in Egypt, but are not yet in Canaan, not yet enjoying 
God's presence eventually. This text provides a powerful metaphor. As with each of the seven that we're looking at, we see here Jesus says, I am the true vine. And this morning as we consider the text, and as we do so in light of Psalm 80, which we read responsibly, as we look at this metaphor, I want to suggest it's a metaphor that's not hard to understand. We read the verses, and it's pretty straightforward, right? Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. Our heavenly Father is the vine dresser or the gardener, right? And our actions, our obedience or disobedience are fruit, right? Good or bad it's pretty straightforward, but it's also something that's pretty difficult to live into, and I think we need to reflect on why we have such difficulty owning and living into this metaphor. I think if we're honest, each and every one of us would say that that picture doesn't describe the regular rhythm of our life. We don't own that metaphor on a daily basis, even if we're God's children, even if we're Christians. We rather have a notion that suggests that our lives Our lives are based on our doing. Our hopes are based on our performance. Our faith, we worry, may be too weak to please God. Our sins are too many and abhorrent. Our curse is looming just around the next corner, and so we walk anxiously. Our neighbors are oftentimes viewed as threats, people we've got to get ahead of, people we've got to beat to the life ahead. And thus, Our very selves we view as slaves or servants trying to perform, trying to earn God's favor and approval. And yet this metaphor, the the true vine that we abide in, that we dwell in, is a very different picture. On the other hand, it presents our hopes as based on God's promise, right? It, It presents our sins as being paid for, It presents our faith as being effective, not because of its fervor, but because of its object and its trustworthiness. It presents our neighbors as being gifts and blessings, not competitors. And it presents our future as being a time of blessing. It presents our very selves, our identity, as being children loved by a heavenly father. It's a very different way of looking at the world. But if If you're honest, even if you're a Christian, we slip away from it, don't we? From living into that metaphor of the vine. I'm reminded of this as I think of one of my favorite movies from childhood, the movie Annie. You probably know the story. The orphan girl who grows up in this horrific home for uh, female orphans in New York City. Mrs. Hannigan is this overbearing and abusive uh, uh, lord of the house, as it were, right? And she's not there to care for the children, but she uses the children for her own gain. And yet one day the billionaire, right, Daddy Warbucks, wants to invite an orphan into his home for the week. And it's a mansion. It's brimming over with blessings. And Annie's brought in. And as soon as she sees this remarkable home, as soon as she encounters the massive foyer, right, the organ, the... Uh, glorious windows, the facade, the gardens, all of the immaculate furnishings. And as soon as the staff is laid out and introduced to her, she's asked, what would you like to do next? And you may remember, if you've seen the movie or the musical, that Annie immediately starts to 
list out the various chores that she will do in the respective order. She'll begin with the floors and she'll move on to other tasks. Even though she's been brought to what seems to be the greatest of resorts, as it were, for a week, she keeps slipping back into servant mode, right? She is so used to having to work, to earn favor, pleasure, acceptance, even the day's food, that she can't receive a gift. She can't imagine a day in the mansion as a child. And that's not just in the movies, is it? I was in the hospital for a couple weeks this fall, and there's nothing to make you feel dependent like being in the hospital, right? You can't go get your food. You may not even be able to go to the bathroom on your own. You are dependent on any number of people, right? And in experiencing that, you can realize how strong and how stubborn is your desire to take care of things on your own to be able to set your schedule to get things done, right? To provide for yourself just on a routine daily basis, sort of the regular rhythms of life. But you know what? While that's more sort of obvious when you're in a, a crisis situation in the hospital, that's, that's a struggle of every day, isn't it? How often do you receive a gift? Someone takes you out to dinner or invites, them over, invites you over to their house but that your first response as you leave that wonderful time is, we'll have to have you over too, right? We'll have to get you back, right? We'll have to return the favor. We are so inclined, we are so habituated to be incapable of receiving gifts. And yet this metaphor tells us that Jesus wants to give and give and give and that we are but branches he is always and ever the vine. Well, how do, how do we read this short passage of scripture and understand something about what Christ has for us and hopefully break out of that cycle of our stubborn sense of self-independence? I think there are four things we can observe here uh, that help describe the shape of this abiding that we're called to. The first that's worth noting right off the bat very briefly is that the way Jesus describes life in the vine, the, the way in which he describes abiding in him, suggests that indifference is impossible. If you look at the first couple of verses here, you see that indifference toward who Jesus is and what he'd have for us is impossible. Look at verse two. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. In other words, he's gonna be up in your business no matter what, right? If you're not bearing fruit, you will be clipped off and removed. And the image is one of judgment. If you are not living into the vine, if you're not drawing life from him and passing it along, if you're not a part of that mission, serving as part of the vine, you will be clipped off. And so there's a stern warning of judgment here. But if you are a part of the vine, he doesn't leave you alone. He didn't save you to send you on your way just as God didn't draw those Israelites out from Egypt as we read in Psalm 80 to, to let them be on their own. He didn't just remove them from Pharaoh's mistreatment. He drew them out that they might be a part of his mission, that they might worship him, that they might be a part of his family, right? And here, 
if you bear fruit, he's going to prune you. He's going he's to go to work on you. He's going to grow you up. He's going to discipline you, as we read in Hebrews 12. But he's going to care for you as a parent does. And so the first thing we've got to see is indifference is impossible. There are many things you can choose not to care about. I want to, I want to free you in case social media suggests otherwise. You don't have to have an opinion about everything in the world, right? I have to remind myself of that daily, sort of hit the head on the desk and then say, I don't have to have an opinion about that, right? Not everything demands my attention. Not everything demands my outrage. Not everything demands my concern or my having a formed opinion. But there are some things that do demand action, right? That you can't be indifferent to. I did my taxes this week, right? I can't be indifferent to that. Every year, it's a liturgy that has to happen, Right? You spend some time with the 1040 form. Not just death and taxes, but Jesus and our Heavenly Father, the vine dresser. You can't be indifferent to them. Right? As C.S. Lewis put it, Jesus is either mad and crazy, he's bad and evil, he's narcissistic, or he's God. Right? The way he's presented in Scripture, the glorious power and truth, the goodness and freedom that he offers is such that you can't ignore it. You can't be indifferent to it. You can disbelieve it and label it as hellish and heinous and death dealing, or you can delight in it and pursue it, but you can't be indifferent to it. The second thing we see here, though, if we're not to be indifferent, if we want to live into the vine, is that we see that dependence is logical. Dependence is logical. And I think this is something that we struggle against so often, this idea that branches only grow in the vine. Now, you and I live in Florida, and so we understand vines and branches. In fact, a week ago in our family, we spent an entire Saturday devoted to the trimming of trees in our backyard. And you will know, as I have learned, that branches don't fare too well when they're severed from the vine. Our, our bulk waste, yard waste pickup is every Friday. Of course, the only day I have time to trim things is on Saturday, which means that after we sort of clear out a forest or jungle's worth of stuff and we bring it up to the front of the house, it has to sit there for six days, right? And it's somewhat impressive. I remember last Saturday, I thought, well, we got a lot of work done. You know, you see the mountains of stuff that we've trimmed off from our different palm trees, and you're somewhat impressed with yourself. You're happy that you got it done. But then Sunday and Monday and Tuesday go, the flies start hovering, things start withering, animals move in, right? It gets rather ugly. Things do not improve. Things do not flourish when they're simply they're cut off in a pile, right? Branches are made to flourish as they're connected to the root. And that was the problem. That's why we had to go in with a hacksaw, as it were, right? Branches grow and flourish. They expand and they shoot off in all sorts of directions as they're drawing life and strength from the vine. And so it is with us. You know, we often think about Christianity as sort of based on Jesus and ending in Jesus, we think about how the beginning of the Christian life is Jesus forgives your sins, right? And whatever you've done, he sort of shakes the etch-a-sketch and lets you start over. He gives you a clean slate, right? 
He bears your burdens before the Father. And we have a notion that Jesus comes back at the end on judgment day. You don't wanna be standing on your own and so he's holding your hand or he's standing in front of you, however you visualize that. And the Father accepts you into his eternal glory for Jesus' sake. But we oftentimes sort of think Jesus is absent in the interim, that we have grace for the beginning and we hope that we'll have grace at the end, but that now we have sort of been given this task and handed a baton and that we're on our own. I remember as a high schooler, I ran track and uh, the final race of every track meet, some of you will know, is the four by 400 meter relay. It's a hellish sporting event. You have to run effectively four 100 meter sprints and you're allowed to run it about a second slower than the guy who does one, right? It's kind of mean, but it's glorious. It's the last event here in Florida at a track meet. The sun is going down, so you've got these glorious hues of the sunset over the track. It's the last event, the meet is often based, the, the, the winners and the losers are gonna be based on who wins this race, so it's dramatic. And it's the last race, so everyone gathers around the track and cheers. It's, it's a great moment. And yet, as somebody who played a lot of sports growing up, who was never apart from a ball or a team or a game, the only time I found myself throwing up before sporting events was every time I ran the four by 400 meter relay. It wasn't that we were bad, we were quite good. And it wasn't that the other teams were that fast. I would, I would get anxious even when we went up against a team that I knew we'd beat. But every time I remember being in the third slot, waiting there with my hand outstretched, feeling my knees knock and my palms sweat, because unlike any other sporting event I'd participated in, I'd been in many, this was the only time where I would be completely on my own for 40 something seconds. Though it's a relay, it's not a team sport. Not really. It's the succession of four individual sporting events. Because I know as soon as my teammate handed me that thing, I either had to make up a gap or I had to keep a lead. And he couldn't help me. And I was off to the races. And let me tell you, nothing was so joyous as handing that hot potato off to the guy and going to the side and puking, right? The pressure, the anxiety, of believing I had to run a lap completely on my own, all eyes on me, no one to help, drove me batty every single time. And there are a lot of Christians who go about their Christian lives that way. Jesus ran a really good lap. Your parents, maybe, or some leader, someone who evangelized you, they've run a good lap and the baton is in your hands and the sun is going down and people are watching and I suspect you, like me, experience your knees shaking and your palms sweating from time to time. And you wonder if you'll make it. But here, we're told, abide in me and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We'll celebrate this coming up, I believe next week, as we turn to the Lord's table, right? Jesus gives grace for every part of the journey. The sacraments remind us that we're not in this to fill up God's needs, right? There are lots of religions that have sacramental rites and practices where you bring food or other blessings to provide for the God. That's the norm of the ancient and the modern world. 
But Christianity is unique. The gospel's completely different. God provides for you. And so we don't come offering a sacrifice to God, but rather we have that wonderful promise of the gospel that these are the gifts of God for the people of God, that he provides grace and that we abide or rest in him. There's a third thing we see about this abiding in Jesus, this life in the vine, this dependent Christian journey that we can't be indifferent to. And that's that Jesus provides even for his absence. Remember Psalm 80, it's there printed in your call to worship, in your bulletin. We read of how God brought a vine out of Egypt and he planted it in the promised land. And Psalm 80 does describe a bad turn. The people are judged, right? And we know in the Old Testament, they were sent into exile because like the Canaanites before him, they turned to idols and they sinned against God. And so he had to judge them. But the psalmist speaks of God coming again and redeeming and saving them. And we repeated three times the most common refrain in that psalm, right? Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Set your face upon us or allow your face to shine on us that we may be saved, right? So often there, God's salvation is described as his face being set before them. God's presence saves us. God being in our midst gives us strength and life and hope, whereas God being absent leaves us to despair and the downward spiral of sin and judgment. And that's what makes John 15 so ironic. If you've read the story before and if you know where this falls in Jesus's life, you know that this is his last supper that he has with his disciples. The story's begun in John 13 where he washes their feet. And then just before this in John 14, he offers what must have been a mysterious and alarming word. And we know that because it tells us that they were troubled by it. And that word was this. He said, a little while yet and I will leave you. He talks about how he's gonna depart from them. He's gonna leave them. And yet here, he calls them repeatedly to abide with me. Now, you've got to remember, abide is a, that's a Christian word. I, I, I never use the word abide in talking to my kids. I never, I've never texted the word abide. I can assure you of that, right? However, I'm pretty sure I've texted the word stay or maybe even remain or continue. And that's all that it means. It means to stay with someone, right? I'm going to stay with my child, because they've had a bad dream, right? And so I'm gonna lay there beside them till they fall back asleep. Or I'm gonna stay at someone's bedside as they're lonely, right, in the hospital. Or I'm gonna stay with a friend who's having a difficult time. Or I'm gonna remain at work because there's a project yet to be done. It speaks of continuing and enduring. And isn't that really ironic that Jesus would say, I'm about to leave you, but stay with me. I mean, at first glance, that, that just sounds like an unfunded mandate. That sounds really kind of mean on the face of it. Like Jesus is telling us to do what we can't really do, right? But what we see here is that Jesus provides even for his physical absence and that there is a way to abide and stay with him even as he has exited stage right. As we read, we see that we can abide with him by abiding with him in his word. And so as you read on 
You see in verse three, of course, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you, right? And as you read on, you see that you abide in me and my words abide in you, right? Verse seven, Jesus is present to us even when he's physically absent. Oftentimes we speak in this congregation of the now power of the gospel, that glorious truth that knowing that you were forgiven is something that you need to be reminded of on a daily basis, that God, God has already saved and redeemed you. God has justified you. God has reconciled you to himself. And that that is just as true today as it was when you became a Christian and you haven't undone it. You haven't lost it. You haven't fallen away from it and put it in jeopardy. And there's a great freedom and hope and boldness that comes from that. But you know, to the now power of the gospel, we've also got to remember what Jesus talks about here, what we might call the present tense of the gospel. It's not just that stuff he did long ago keeps having significance, but that he keeps doing things on your behalf. He's active. He is engaged. He is not on vacation. He is not on sabbatical. He has not handed you the baton and simply watching you run around the track on your own. But he speaks a word and he ministers his presence so that he doesn't just call you to abide in him, but he says, and I abide in you. He dwells in you. He's present to you. He stays with you. Even though we know, as 1 John 1 puts it, we've never seen him. We've not touched him. Right? We've not laid eyes upon him. And yet he abides or stays with us through his word. He provides grace for every leg of the journey. And that's why as we consider the sacraments, again, the symbols of the gospel, we see that Jesus doesn't just provide baptism showing that you were dead in him and raised in him and that everything you have is in him and that your beginning of the journey is of his doing. You can't baptize yourself, right? You have to be baptized by another. But that Beginning grace is matched by sustaining grace. And so next week, we'll turn to the Lord's Supper. The idea that there's food for the journey, that Christ doesn't leave you on your own. And though we so often think that all we need is for somebody to, to jump our car, as it were, and then we'll go our own way. We just need someone to start us off. We just need Jesus to get things going. We just need a push or a nudge in the right direction, and then we'll keep up the project on our own. We'll go back to working and to independence and to our stubborn pursuit of doing it ourselves. No, we don't simply need a jump start to our car. We need, we need gas for the journey. We need provision from the outside. We know that, of course, in that we eat several times a day and we drink for our nourishment. Our bodies require sustenance from outside. And we know that because you constantly have to breathe oxygen in. You literally cannot continue without provision from the outside. And the reason that Christians have prayed at meals through the centuries is that that's such a profound reminder of what's spiritually true of you as well. It's not just that you need someone to birth you or baptize you or convert you, but you need someone to sustain you spiritually. You need to live in the vine. You can abide in the vine and flourish in the vine and you can't do it. You simply can't do it on your own. And notice fourth, the goal of abiding. And there's two things we see. The goal is, is first that you would bear fruit. 
And the goal is second, that you would flourish in Christ's love and Christ's joy. We see that at the end of the passage, right? We see in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love, right? These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so as we abide in the vine, we, we first of all are, are brought into the mission of the vine, obeying the commandments of Jesus, just as Jesus has obeyed the call of the Father. So we abide in that mission and that calling. One of the ways we're provided for is direction. Christians should never be those who feel directionless, purposeless, as though we don't know what we're here for. I may not know what to order for dinner, but I do know what I'm here on earth for, right? I have lots of difficult questions about what to say to someone, how to how to schedule things, how to go about certain tasks, but I know the broader purpose. I'm here to abide and participate in the broader goal, the kingdom, the mission of Jesus, that I might bear fruit as a part of that project that he's graciously brought me into. But I also know that it's not a slavish task and that participating in his mission is the most satisfying, fulfilling, joy-giving project you could possibly be a part of. The very love that his father has for him is the love that he shares with you. And notice, he asks that the very joy that fills him, the joy that sustained him as we read in Hebrews 12 too, that he endured the cross despising its shame for the joy set before him. That that very joy that kept Jesus enduring that agony, that pain, that shame on the cross is the same joy that will be within you. And that he says, we'll be full, right? I'm reminded of one of my very favorite verses in the entire Bible from the psalmist in Psalm 1611, where he says, you'll show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, greater joy than you can imagine. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, longer lasting joy and delight than you could possibly fathom. And so we see here that abiding in Christ, remaining or staying with him, living into him and leaning into his provision, turning away from our stubborn pursuit of self-willed religion, but instead continuing to entrust ourselves to him, that's actually where love and where joy are truly found because that's where he's our all in all. And that's why elsewhere, like in Matthew 13, Jesus will tell other metaphors to speak powerful truths. For instance, in Matthew 13, 44 to 46, he'll say, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which once a man finds, he covers it up, and in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has so that he can buy it, right? Or the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had so that he could buy it. We do have to let go. We have to let go of our control. We have to let go of the delusion of our independence. We do have to sell things. We have to deny our absurd, doomed to fail project of standing up on our own two feet. But we're called to the pearl of great price 
We're called to the treasure hidden in a field. We're called to God's love and God's joy. And we're promised that he provides for every step of the way and that our life will be sustained as we live into that vine. Let's pray together and ask that God would in each of us make real his presence, his joy, his love, that we might increasingly be called out and drawn to trust our, our Father. Lord, we, we thank you for this word, this reminder from Jesus. We trust that he is with us even as we abide in his word. We trust that he is with us showing us your love, all that he has done on our behalf, all that he has suffered in our place, all that he is active in doing in our very midst. And we trust that as he's with us, he's showing us your joy, the joy that he has for us, the way in which what we were made for and the glory we were made to receive, we can have only in him. And we confess that often we fail to get it. We, in fact, hate it. We long to be like God. We long to be the Lord. We long to be in control. Would you remind us that you never leave us? And would you remind us that we can entrust ourselves in each and every moment, in the days that are good and full of plenty, and in the days that seem so bereft of blessing, the days that hurt so hard, would you remind us that you are with us in both, that we might turn all of our joys to thanks and praise, and that we might take all of our struggles and pains to you in prayer and supplication. We pray that you would increase our faith. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.